0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. A key component of living in perilous times and living through perilous times and surviving and overcoming perilous times is faithfulness. It's obvious that if you quit halfway through, you're not going to make it through to the end. And so if we live in perilous times, God desires for us to be faithful he desires for us to be faithful to him and faithful to his word faithful to the church faithful to the cause of Christ but the thing about faithfulness is faithfulness is easy when things are easy right when things are good when everybody's kind of going along when the sun is shining and the skies are blue and you know you're driving down the road and every street light is green you're just kind of going and going and going faithfulness is easy But what about when you hit the potholes of life? What about when you run into a rough section of life? Faithfulness gets a little bit more difficult. We get challenged a little bit more. Maybe thoughts might creep into our minds. Maybe this whole journey of the Christian life is not worth it. Maybe, maybe what God says is, is true, but I, I don't know if maybe I necessarily want to go through all of that. I mean, we know certainly of the persecutions that many Christians have faced in the Bible and in time since. Okay? Persecution facing Christians all around the world. It reminds me of a passage in 1 Samuel chapter number 14. There's a, a passage here. Here is uh, the nation of Israel. Here's the army of Saul, King Saul. Saul has been made the king. He's gathered to himself an army. He's got about 3,000 men. He goes and battles with the Philistines, and he has a victory. Great. That's wonderful. Well, the Philistines didn't like that. So you know what they did? They brought out everybody. I mean, the whole nation came out, so much so that the Bible says that there were uh, 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 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and the Bible says that all the soldiers were like the sand of the sea. They didn't even bother counting them because it was so many. It's like, ah, that's, that's way more than we've got. No point in even counting them. So it's no surprise that when you read later on in the chapter that Saul's army had dwindled from 3,000 down to 600. He's lost 80% of his army. Some of them have fled away, some are hiding, the rest are trembling, following after King Saul, and nobody knows what to do. We have 600 men. They've got 6,000 horsemen, 30,000 chariots, and an innumerable army. I mean, what's the the point of us even being here? Well, Jonathan is the son of King uh, King Saul, and Jonathan said, well, said to his armor bearer, this kind of helper in the, in the army. He said, well, let's go up to the Philistines. You never know what's going to happen. Maybe God will work through us because God could work through many or he could work through few. So let's go up and let's just see what the Lord does. And he goes over there and he reveals himself to the Philistines. He says, hey, Philistines, I'm here. And he said to his armor bearer, he said, armor bearer, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to say, hey, Philistines, I'm here. If they say... You come up over here, then we're gonna go, and that means that God's gonna give us victory. If they say, wait right there, we're coming to get you, that's a bad sign. Let's run. Okay? So he says, All right, this is what over there, and he says, Hey Philistines, I'm here. And they said, Come over here and let us teach you a thing or two. And Jonathan says, We got him, <laughs> right? Can you imagine the armor bear? We do? <laughs> we got him? really? That's it? That's all we got to do? I don't know what he was really thinking, but he's saying, all right, Jonathan, whatever you do, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm following right after you. Jonathan says, let's go. And he goes over there and he goes right into the army of the Philistines, one man with his armor bearer behind him. And he starts having victory and he starts winning and he starts killing people. and, And the Philistines don't know what to do. And so they all start running from this one guy. It's like when you have, you know, the, you know, my kids, they're afraid of little bugs, they're afraid of little ants, you know, this one little ant, ah, so scary, right, that's an ant, but that's what was happening to the Philistine army, this one man, this one ant comes into this army, and everybody just ran away. Everybody starts running away, and Jonathan's like, yeah, we got the victory, and he keeps going, and and the armor bearer, the Bible says, he went up after him, and whoever Jonathan missed, he was going after them, you know, he's like, yeah, we do got it, and he starts going, and you can imagine the big ruckus that this caused in the army, and not only that, with Saul, because Saul, even though he's got an army of 600 people, he's not really observing, but he's got scouts here and there, and, uh, Somebody comes back and he says, Saul, I don't know what's going on, but the army's like in chaos, and they're like running away. And he's like, really, what happened? And he he was counting, who's here, who's not here? Jonathan's not here. But they go up, they see what's happening, and everybody goes after him. The whole army is like, hey, we're winning, and they go after them. And the Bible says in verse number 22 that there were some men of Israel which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, that when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. You know what happened was there was a bunch of men in the army of Israel that when they saw the huge army of the Philistines come, they said, whoa, this is not what I signed up for. And they went and they hid themselves. So they were hiding, and they, they didn't want to fight. They didn't want to go home. They didn't, they didn't know what they were doing, so they hid themselves. And it is when they heard that the Philistines were running away, that they jumped out and they said, here we are, all right, let's go fight! See, when the, army's, when the enemy is running away, it's easy to jump out and fight. But what about when the army turns around and starts running at you? That's when it's, people start to think, whoa, 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 what did I sign up for? Maybe this isn't really what I want to do. Here we are facing some perilous times today. And the question that you and I need to ask ourselves is, will we stand or will we run? Will we stand or will we run? And Paul's admonition to Timothy is, we're living in perilous times, this is the time to stand. This is the time that we've got to stand. This is the time that we as Christians, we've really got to hold to God's word. This is the time that we've really got to obey God's word. This is the time when we really find out if we're living God's word and if we're going to live God's word. God gives us powerful tools for perilous times, but we've got to be faithful. We've got to be faithful to God and to his word. And so I want to see this morning as we take a look at this passage, some powerful motives for faithfulness. I know that in perilous times, being faithful is scary. You don't know what's going to happen. What if you lose your job? What if financial difficulties arise? Maybe you lose a friend. Maybe your family will leave you. Yeah, you, you have no idea. Maybe what will happen if you live for the Lord, and maybe some of those fears will stop some Christians from taking a stand for God, but God here, and Paul, through the, the Holy Spirit, is giving some admonition to Timothy and to us today, to be faithful. So the first reason that we see, the first motive for faithfulness is that God's infinite capability motivates Christians to faithfulness. Verse number eight says this, remember. One of the reasons why we have church services on Sunday, and then we have another church service on Sunday night, and then another service on Wednesday night, And we encourage Christians to read their Bible every day is so that they will remember. Because it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget. You ever forget something important? You you ever forget a birthday? You ever forget an anniversary? You forget an appointment? You forget about something that you were supposed to do and then now it's too late? I had an incident a, 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 a little while ago where My driver's license expired this year, and I didn't realize it until the day before it expired. It expires on your birthday, and I realized it the day before my birthday. And I was like, wait, what am I going to do? And So I had to go to the DMV, I was waiting in line, I wasted all this time, when I could have easily done it if I had only prepared ahead of time. Because you can renew your driver's license ahead of time and get it mailed to you weeks, months in advance if you want to. But I had forgotten. And because I had forgotten, I went through this whole ordeal. Well, Christians sometimes can forget. Sometimes we can forget what we're supposed to do. Sometimes we have other priorities that kind of sneak up and creep up and become more important than the main thing that God wants us for, uh, for us to do. So when Paul is telling Timothy, remember, he's not telling him anything new. See, in this message, there's probably nothing new that you're going to hear, all right? That's not an invitation for you to fall asleep, okay? (laughs) All right, but the point is, we've got to remember, and Paul is telling Timothy, I know I've told you this before, but remember, this will help you, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, But the word of Christ is not bound. See, verse number one says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What Paul is telling Timothy is, remember what Jesus did. Remember what Jesus did? Remember when he was here on earth? Remember when he stood before the chief priest? Remember when he stood before the Pharisees? Remember when he stood before Pilate? Remember when he went through all of that? Remember when he was crucified? Remember they beat him? They put him up on the cross and then he died? And remember he was buried? Remember everybody thought that was the end? Remember everybody thought it was over? Maybe everybody thought it's time for us to move on? But Paul is reminding Timothy the crucifixion was not the end. It was the beginning. The crucifixion didn't mark the end. It marked the beginning of the Christian life for you and for me. Because without the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we have no hope of salvation. Without the resurrection of the dead, we have no hope of eternal life. And yet you and I, those of us that are saved, we stand before the Lord and we stand before one another and say, I am sure of eternal life. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ has done. And remember what Jesus did. Up from the grave he arose. He says, remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Then in verse number 9, he says, where I suffer trouble, as an, evildo- as an evildoer, even unto, ba- uh, uh, unto bonds. What he's saying is, I'm restricted right now. I'm in prison. I can't go wherever I want. I can't do whatever I want. I'm stuck here. You ever feel that way? You ever feel stuck? You can't do what you want to do. You can't go where you want to go. You're not making progress in the areas that you're hoping to make progress in. You ever feel stuck? Paul here is saying, I'm suffering as an evildoer. I'm in bondage. I'm in prison. I can't do the things that I want. I am bound, but the word of God is not bound. You know what Paul is telling Timothy? He's saying, I can't do whatever I want, but God can do whatever he wants. God is not limited by you and me. God is not limited by the government. God is not limited by what's popular on social media. God is not limited by what people believe. God's word is not bound. And the proof of that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, when you think about, you know, those that have power today, who do you think about? When you think about who are some of the most powerful people in the world today, you might think about some people in politics You might think about some people in business. You might think about people who are just really popular, and they know a lot of people, and everybody likes them, and everybody wants to please them. You might have some individuals like that. There's a lot of people that have power. But what God is trying to say here is there's nobody that has more power than Jesus Christ. Do you know why that is? Because it doesn't matter how powerful you are. Think about all the powerful people in history think about Caesar, think about Alexander the Great, you think about popular, you know, politicians, wealthy businessmen. It's true of every single one of them. It is appointed unto man once to die. Every single one of them died and that was the end of their life here on earth. But you know what's true of Jesus Christ? He died, but that wasn't the end. He rose again, And he ascended into heaven, and he's preparing a place for us. And he's waiting for us. And one day he will call us home, hopefully before I die. (laughs) The rapture will come, and I will go to be with him. And what Paul is reminding Timothy is, remember this Jesus Christ who has done something that nobody else has ever done. He died, and he resurrected himself from the dead, and he has never died again. And what Paul is saying here is, there's power there, amen? There's power there. There's a power that is greater than any man or woman has ever attained to themselves. And what God is trying to tell us is that there is power in the gospel. That's what he's trying to give to people. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Now, if you're saved today, you were saved by the gospel. Amen? According to the gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's not faith and works. It is faith alone. You put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're saved. Praise the Lord for that. And you are always saved. You never have to worry about that. Now you might say, well, I'm saved already. That's in the past. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And praise the Lord for that. But what Paul's trying to remind Timothy is, the power that was residing there in the word of God, sufficient for your salvation, is still there for you in the daily Christian walk. See, the power that is there, that can resurrect you when Jesus comes again, that can save your soul, is enough for the Christian life that you are living today. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, for the word of God is quick, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What God is saying is there is power in the word of God. It's like a sword that pierces into your soul and into your heart. And even though you don't want to listen to it, you don't want to hear it, it gets in there. And it starts to mess with you. And it says, this is what's wrong, and this is what's right, and this is what's true, and this is what's false. And it divides and it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which ye he heard of us, you received it not as word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So you need something to work in your life, get a hold of the Word of God. And Paul is telling Timothy, get a hold of the Word of God. Listen to it, read it, study it, and apply it, and live it, and share it with somebody else because it's going to change your life. And Paul, he gave his testimony a number of times in the book of Acts. Acts. In the book of Acts, remember when he got saved? Remember he was on the way to Damascus? Remember he was going there to persecute Christians? Remember Jesus met him on the way to Damascus? And remember that Jesus was there and Paul is saying, who art thou? Remember Jesus responded, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom thou persecuteth? And remember what Jesus said? He said, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Remember what Jesus was telling Paul? He's saying, more than a governmental authority, more than a military power, more than some business wealth, the thing that worked in his heart more than anything else was the Word of God. That got into his heart. That said, you're a sinner, Paul. Even though you might be blameless above all the other men on the earth, you're still a sinner in my sight. And he couldn't get that out of his head. He knew that he was a sinner. And he knew that Jesus had died, but that he had risen from the dead. And he was wondering, what does that mean for him? And he he didn't want to give up that old life and that old system, but God's word kept working in his heart, and he couldn't get it out of his mind. Nobody was talking to him then about Jesus of Nazareth and the gospel. They were only talking about killing Christians. And yet, deep in his heart, God's word was working. The worst of persecutors and enemies of Jesus Christ Was now a Christian. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. You know why we've got to be faithful today? Because God can still save people today. Your friend can still be saved, your neighbor can still be saved, your family member. Maybe that one that you've been witnessing to for years and years and years and decades, that person can still be saved. They still have a chance. God's word can still work. So we've got to be faithful because God is saying there's still power in the gospel to save lives, to work in your life. That's the first reason that we are motivated to faithfulness. Secondly, we see that God's important causes motivate Christians to faithfulness. Verse number 10 says, therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So we've established that God still has power today, but what is he using that power for? What's that power used for? You ever see extremely wealthy people buy extremely worthless, useless things that make you wonder why? Did you buy that? Why are you doing that? (laughs) Why are you living that way? A lot of people buy very silly things. On the internet, wealthy people buy very wealthy things to show off to their wealthy people and then they never use it again. I don't know exactly what motivates people, but it's important for us to know why God still gives us his power. He could have said, I saved you, that's it. You don't need any more. You're saved, you're on your way to heaven. But God wants something from his power. He's got some important causes. And the first first of which we've already referenced, he uses his power for the cause of our eternal salvation. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation. Aren't you glad that God's power extended to 2021. Aren't you glad that God's power extended to the year that you got saved? Think about the year that you got saved. Maybe you got saved 5 years ago, maybe you got saved 10 years ago, maybe you got saved 50 years ago. Think about that day. Jesus Christ died on the cross a long time ago. And usually when we build things, they are powerful and then they decrease in power, right? You buy a new phone, there's, God, there's power in that battery, and slowly over time, it dissipates, right? You buy all sorts of things. Over time, the batteries, they dissipate. The power slowly disappears. It gets less and less powerful, but God's gospel, its power maintains itself even till today. Aren't you thankful for that? Because that means that you can be saved. If you're lost here today, you could be saved today. Your neighbor could still be saved, and God has given to us That power so that people could still be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So why does God give us power? Why is there power still still in his word and in the gospel so that people could be saved? There's another important cause, and the second cause is our excellent status. We know that God is a giving God, amen? He's a generous God. He gave us his son, he gave us his word, he gave us his Holy Spirit, he gives us blessings on earth, and he gives rewards in heaven. See, a God that is a giving God wants the best for you. He wants to give you the best gift. And he gives to us this explanation in verse number 10. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, God wants you not just in heaven, but remember what he said, lay out for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says, I don't want you to just show up there. I want you to bring some things with you. Now, I want you... I want you to turn your attention. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 10 if you want to. We'll be there for a little bit. We're going to read this passage. The verses will be on the screen if you want to read it there. Or you can just write it down as I listen. Matthew chapter 10, verse number 33. I want you to take a look at this verse. I'm going to read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 11. It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with him, we also shall live with him. If we suffer, we also shall reign with him. And here's this last phrase. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now, what does that mean? Some people think, oh, this must be in reference to salvation. If sometime I trusted Christ as my Savior, but I denied the Lord sometime in my life, then I, I must not be saved anymore. I lost my salvation. Well, that's not what the Bible is saying. Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. Whosoever shall deny me before men... Him also will I deny before my Father, which is in heaven. What is he saying here? Let's read what he says. Verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foe shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. So the context of if we deny him, he will deny us comes with this idea of you're going to face some persecution and you have a choice. Will you love God, follow God, hold on to God, or will you reject him and hold on to some human relationship that you've got? That's the context. If you deny him, he also will deny you before your father, which is in heaven. So what does that mean? Oh, I didn't save this person. Is that what he's saying? Let's continue. Verse 39. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He that receiveth you receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Do you see the context in which Jesus used the words, if you deny me, I will deny your father before heaven, you're going to face some opportunities, you're going to have opportunities to deny me before men, and you're going to hold on to desiring to please, maybe a family member, you want to please your spouse, or a father, or a mother, or a child, or a friend, you want to please them more than you want to please God, you have an opportunity to deny me, but if you do that, you will lose your reward. There's a reward that God wants for you, and you've got to be faithful in the face of persecution. There's a phrase in the Bible that is often used, and when I was young, I totally misunderstood the phrase. The phrase in the Bible that Jesus gives is, the first shall be last, and the last first. And I used this, I I remember when I was a kid, I had an opportunity, I had a friend of mine, and uh, they, uh, the, the house had uh, some uh, firearms, and uh, for one of my friend's birthday, we went up into the foothills of, uh, of the mountains, and we found one of these places where you put up all of these targets and whatever, and uh, you basically shoot at the targets. It was a lot of fun. You know, I, I didn't have any firearms in my home, and, uh, but my friend did, and so I thought, oh, this will be fun. And you know, my friend's dad, we all got up there, and he gave us an all-basic safety instructor course of, you know, all right, if anybody says stop, everybody says stop. You know, here's how you hold the firearm. You don't point it around. You point it down or you point it up. You got to make sure that it's empty. Don't just assume that it's empty. You know, all of these things. He went through the whole thing. And uh, I remember he went through the whole thing, and he says, all right, who wants to go first? Trick question. I said, I want to go first. And he said, the first shall be last and the last first. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to be last. I remember another friend had said, I'll be last. Apparently, he had already gone through this thing before. And he said, the last shall be first. You get to go first. And I was like, that's not fair. (laughs) You tricked me. Who wants to go first? Is that what the Bible is saying? Well, we're going to take a look at this passage, Matthew chapter 19, verse number 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Hey, Jesus, we've faced all the persecution and we've been faithful. What's our reward? Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Wow. That's pretty good. And everyone that forsaketh houses, or brethren, or sisters, or mother, or father, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But... Many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So, Jesus is going to try to teach Peter and the disciples a lesson. And he gives them a parable. The parable is this. The the verses are right after that. You can look it up later if you want. But the parable is this. Here is a man, he owns a vineyard, and he goes out into the field, or he goes out into the city courtyard, and he needs to hire some people to go out into the vineyard and work in the vineyard. So he goes out there early in the morning, and he finds some people, and they say, how much are you going to pay us for this day's work? And he, they negotiated, and he said, I'll give you a penny, a day's wages. I'll pay you for working 12 hours today. And they said, okay, we'll do that. And they went out into the field. This is about maybe, let's say, 6 a.m. Three hours later, he goes back. The owner of the vineyard goes back to the courtyard and sees more people and he says what are you doing here? And he says nobody's hired us. I'll hire you. No negotiation. They just say okay. The the owner of the vineyard says I'll pay you what you deserve. No guarantee. I'll pay you what you deserve. I'll pay you what is right. He said okay. They went. Three hours later, six hours after that first group, he goes back, sees more people, hires more people, tells them the same thing. I'll pay you what is right. They said, okay. The 11th hour, it's like five o'clock at night. He goes out, more people. What are you doing here at five at night? Nobody's hired us. What do you want us to do? (laughs) All right, I'll hire you. Get out there and I'll pay you what is right. They go out there for one hour. And then they all line up. And they line up, the last shall be first and the first last. So the first people that got hired stood last in line. And the people who got hired last stood first in line in order to be paid. So the people who got hired last worked one hour. That group of one hour working people got paid one penny. He paid them a penny and they left. The second group worked six hours, came to the front of the line, he paid them a penny and they walked out. The group that worked nine hours came, got paid a penny. The group that got paid last was the group that appeared first that had negotiated for one penny a day. They showed up and the Bible says that they assumed that they would get paid more. Why? Because human nature is, I worked harder than that guy, shouldn't I get paid more? You ever felt that way at work? I work harder than that guy, how come we get paid the same? That's not fair. That's what these people were thinking. They showed up expecting, oh man, that first group, they only worked one hour, they got paid a penny, I worked 12 times what they worked, man, we must be getting paid a lot. And the owner gave them a penny. And they grumbled about it. And the owner said, what are you grumbling about? These people didn't have to work through the hardest part of the day, and they got paid a penny, and you paid us who have borne the heat of the day. We've been there all day, and you paid us the same amount, that's not fair. remember what the owner said? you and I negotiated ahead of time for one penny. Isn't that what you negotiated? What are you gonna say? I agreed to the the deal and the deal is the deal. I have nothing to say. You know what Jesus is trying to teach from this lesson of this vineyard owner? What he's trying to say is, I want to give you so much more than even what you find agreeable or reasonable. See, if you went to God and said, God, if I live for you and I do all of these things, then it, 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 is, it, can we do that? God might say yes, but God is so generous that he wants to give you more. See, Peter said, hey, we, we've suffered through all of this persecution. We've been faithful to you. What are you going to give us? And Jesus said, all right, you want a negotiation? You want to know what you're going to get rewarded with? All right, how about this? I'll give you one of the thrones and you'll be able to uh, rule over one of the tribes of israel is that good enough is that pretty good isn't that pretty good that's pretty good right if you're peter james or john nathan you know all of the philip you know you have all of these disciples you would say i'll do that yeah sounds like a great deal and jesus said the last shall be first and the first shall be last you know what god's saying is why are you settling for that i want to give you so much more and what god is trying to say here through this example is, I want to give you so much more. Because as human beings, we don't even comprehend what eternal glory is. When you hear the words eternal glory, what are you picturing in your mind? I don't know. (laughs) What is eternal glory? I haven't the slightest clue. I don't know what it means. I've seen pictures. You know, we know that the streets are paved with gold. There's jewels in the, in the walls and the gates are pearl. We know what, what heaven is kind of going to look like. But what exactly is eternal glory? How great is eternal glory? I don't know. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 9 Kind of gives us a little bit of context. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. You can't even imagine what God wants to give you. How is that possible? So I've got some little kids. Let's take some little kids. Let's say you've got a two-year-old. Let's say you got a one-year-old, you got a three-year-old. Let's take one of these little kids. And they're wonderful, right? Little kids are great, right? I, they, they're a handful, but they are great. I love my kids. I, 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 I love, you know, playing with them. I love doing all of this stuff. I love taking them out. I love having conversations with my kids. I love having conversations with my kids. I remember before my kids could talk. That was a tough time. Child. What do you want? I don't know what that is. What do you want? <laughs> you know? And sometimes they can't describe it. And then they get frustrated with me. How come you don't get it? This is what I want. You know? Now we can talk. We have a conversation. I'm like, oh, this is what you want. It's great. I love my little kids. But my little kids don't really understand how the world works. They don't understand what I do for a living. They don't understand that you have to go out and work. You work, you earn money, you bring it home to pay for rent, for food, for clothes, all of that stuff. They don't understand any of those things. They also don't understand value. They don't understand how valuable some things really are. If you were to give a two-year-old a suitcase full of $100 bills, and offer them either you can have the suitcase full of $100 bills or you can have this cardboard box that has a plastic toy in it that sparkles and shimmers. Which one do you want? They're going to take the toy every time. Which one's more valuable? We know but that child hasn't the slightest clue as to what is more valuable. Now, this is, of course, a hypothetical situation, but let's say the situation were real. And my child, for whatever reason, was picked to do this experiment. You can either have this suitcase full of $100 bills or this plastic dollhouse in this cardboard box. I'm gonna coach my child. All right, child? All right, here's what we're gonna do. All right? I know that the toy is going to be bright and shiny and sparkly, and you're going to really want to have it, but trust me, the suitcase with the $100 bills is much more valuable. Trust me on this. Trust me, please, trust me, right? Okay, the child is going to go in, and he's going to look at that suitcase, and say, okay, dad said this is way more valuable than this one, but I haven't the slightest clue as to why. It doesn't look valuable to me. What am I gonna do with a suitcase full of paper? That doesn't sound great. It's not even blank paper, What am I, I can't draw on it. What am I gonna do with this? And the child has a choice. Am I going to pick what I think is better, or am I gonna pick What my dad said was better. I've got to choose. What God is telling us is, trust me. Trust me on this. Eternal glory. I know you don't understand it. I know you don't know how valuable it is. But trust me. This one's way more valuable. Don't pick the plastic toys. Pick the suitcase full of eternal glory. That's what you want. And we've got a life that we're living. And we've got a job opportunity ahead of us. But we know this job opportunity is going to take us away from serving God. Which one are you going to pick? Wow, this job is going to pay me double what I used to get paid. That looks pretty shiny and sparkly and fun and exciting. And God is saying, I know it looks fun. I know it looks great. I know it looks attractive to you. But I'm telling you which one is more valuable. Which one is more valuable in all of eternity? That's why Jesus says, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through or steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So why does God give us his power? He says, I want people to be saved. And if you're saved today, praise the Lord for that. But there's so much more to the Christian life than just being saved. God says, I've got something great for you in heaven. I have eternal glory that I want you to have. You've got to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, but every day of your life, you've got a choice between the suitcase of eternal glory or a bright, shiny, sparkly little toy in a cardboard box that is called this life that we have here on earth. The choice is yours. I know that going out and eating nice food and traveling the world, all of that is fun and exciting. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having plastic toys. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're giving up suitcases full of $100 bills in order to have that, God is saying, oh, you could have so much more. You could have so much better. Why does God give us power? Because he says, you can only have this eternal glory through my power. You've got to have that power living in you, working through you, if you're going to have that eternal glory. So the second cause is our eternal glory. Thirdly, he uses his power for the cause of our expected service. Because the Christian life is not about me. The Christian life's not supposed to be about me, right? It's supposed to be about somebody else, right? The Christian life is supposed to be about our Lord, and the Christian life is supposed to be about others. Verse number 10, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 10. Therefore, I endure all things for who? For the elect's sake, for others, those that are saved, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You know what Jesus is saying, or what Paul is saying here? What he's saying is, I'm living through perilous times, suffering persecution, not for my eternal glory, not for my rewards, but for yours. You know why Paul suffered through some of these things? His mindset was not about what he could get. His mindset was about what they could get. He wanted them to have something that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, Paul was willing to go through all of these things, all of the beatings, all of the whippings, all of the the stonings, all of that for their sake. You know why God gives you power? So that you could live not for yourself, but for others. Thirdly, god's invariable consistency motivates christians to faithfulness verse 13 if we believe not yet he abideth faithful he cannot deny himself the reason why you and i need to be faithful is because jesus is faithful the reason why we need to be faithful Is because Jesus never fails. He never fails. His word has never failed. His power has never failed. You know who is the one that falls short in this relationship between you and Jesus Christ, between me and Jesus Christ? It's not Jesus Christ, it's me. That's why I need to be faithful. I've got to be faithful because I know Jesus will always be faithful. I know Jesus will never fail. I know that Jesus will always be there. I know that Jesus, his power will always be there. I know that Jesus will never forsake us. He will never leave us. I know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we've got to be faithful. If there's going to be a missing point in the Christian life, it will never be his word. It will never be the Holy Spirit. It will never be Jesus Christ. If there's going to be a weak point, it's going to be me. That ought to motivate us to be faithful. God, I don't want to be the reason why somebody else doesn't receive the gospel. I don't want to be the reason why somebody else didn't live for God. I don't want to be the reason why somebody missed out on some opportunity because I wasn't there, and I wasn't serving, and I wasn't involved. God, I know that you're always ready. I know that you're always able. God, I don't want to be that that one. That ought to motivate us to faithfulness. See, we're living in perilous times, and each and every one of you is going to face some difficulties. If you were to witness straightforward to your boss, some of you know wow, that would have some really bad consequences for my job. If you were to be a witness to your family or your relatives, you know that will cause a problem. You know that if you live for God, it might even cause problems in your own house. And what God is saying is, that's perilous times. That's perilous times. But you've got a choice. Suitcases full of eternal glory... Or cardboard boxes full of earthly treasures. The choice is yours. And what God is telling us is, trust me on this. Faithfulness is way better. Faithfulness is way better.